0: Welcome to this episode of the Revolution and Ideology podcast. We're continuing our Myth is America series. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. In this episode, we're going to talk probably a little briefly on the life of Abigail Adams and uh, her kind of importance during this period. We debated for a while, uh, even taking the time to do an episode on Abigail uh, but we felt we couldn't continue our conversation uh if we're going in a linear fashion. We really didn't feel good about skipping her over because even though she's not super crucial uh in like the course of the War for Independence or the types of things that we're talking about, it's super important for us to just mention her and her ideals and how important and unique they were at the time. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time doing like an entire history of her life. Um, like we did for some of the other people that we've discussed. But we just want to talk a little bit about what she believed and the fact that she had enough gall to say these things and be outspoken about these issues at the time was uh definitely super significant. Um, So the first thing that I kind of learned when I dove in uh, to the research on Abigail Adams that I never really thought of before, even though like now that you know it, it totally makes sense, is that John Adams was basically never at home. He was, as if you know anything about him and his life, uh, busy off gallivanting being basically a public servant. Uh, he was professionally an attorney, um, but once things kick off, he becomes uh, basically a public official. And that's even before he's vice president and then president. Uh, he's like the ambassador to Britain. He's a commissioner to France at one point. So he's off in Europe. He's living in Boston and so on throughout the majority of their life together. He's basically never at home. He comes home uh, once every few months to hang out, but that's about it. Um, he moves Abigail and the rest of the family to Braintree, Massachusetts uh, in 1774, which is about 10 miles south of Boston, and this is where the Adams estate was. Uh, so when his parents uh, get ill and can no longer manage the estate, uh, he moves the family there. But John himself lives in Boston, basically, uh, throughout this time period. So the family is on their own in Braintree, like I said, about 10 minutes south. It's kind of weird I when I was looking at the timeline of all these things and the letters back and forth. The fact that it was only 10 miles and he still only came home every few months was a little weird, but dude's busy as shit, I guess, obviously. Um, but I say all that to say that Abigail Adams herself was basically managing the day-to-day affairs of the family. So she's managing their estate. She is the one in charge of basically all of the family's business. So she's managing the planting of crops throughout their land. She's managing collecting the rents from the people that are renting land on the estate, uh, etc. And it's interesting because uh, of all of the founders' archives, the letters between John and Abigail, there are thousands of them. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. Historians point to their marriage as like this... Example of this really unique marriage at the time, uh, because John basically gave her the power to manage the family businesses. Because I mean, he really didn't have a choice; he was too busy uh, doing other shit. Uh, and it's interesting that in the letters, a lot of times you'll read the details of what Abigail's doing regarding their finances and their assets uh, and so on. And some of them even contain. I found a few that had a power of attorneys that John had filled out and mailed, uh, giving her the power to conduct business because. If you remember at this time in American history, women were not married women were not legally allowed to own property uh, or conduct certain types of business. So anytime that Abigail wanted to buy or sell property or do something significant business-wise, she had to have permission of her uh, husband. And oftentimes, interestingly, he would grant power of attorney to his eldest son, John Quincy Adams. And then uh, Quincy Adams and Abigail would go and purchase the land or sell the land or do whatever business they needed to do. So just kind of interesting the way that this relationship goes down and the fact that Abigail is essentially running shit uh, the entire time.
1: Some interpretations of English common law even put the woman as like actual property of the husband. I mean, dating back to prior episodes, we talked about this even in Jamestown regarding indentured servants and female indentured servants, how they could not uh, basically save two masters. That's why they weren't allowed to get married. The idea was that you actually own in this case it's meant to be the reproductive rights of that woman that's really the goal there so the fact that like john was maybe pushing some envelope here can maybe be a silver lining to the story um but yeah i'll let nick keep going in this explanation
0: uh, one of the stories is that uh, Abigail invested heavily into war bonds during the War for Independence, and the war bonds themselves have a sordid history that we'll probably get to at some point when we talk about maybe Hamiltonian economics or something in a future episode. Uh, but just know that uh, people invested in them, they then basically became absolutely worthless uh, for a period of years. But then when Hamilton is the treasurer and he issues the what's called the First Report on Public Credit in 1790... It basically lays out policy that all of the war bonds will be paid back by the federal government at full value. This creates a massive financial windfall for the Adams family, and it's purely due to Abigail Adams' uh, financial acumen, which is kind of interesting. And I found a few historians that suggest that the only reason that the Adams family was able to uh, remain wealthy throughout the latter part of their lives was because of this sole investment that Abigail had made. Because once John basically backs off his work uh, officially as an attorney and becomes a public official, he's not making, obviously, nearly as much money. So they point to the fact that they were able to maintain all their assets and their wealth uh, the entire time due to Abigail's business dealings, which is super interesting uh, to think about. You never really think about the fact that these men that are the quote-unquote founders of the country— are busy as shit all the time doing all of this stuff so the women clearly must be managing uh, all of their uh, home life at least uh, those of them that live outside of the city of Boston or wherever these things are taking place so interesting to think about and Abigail Adams for sure uh, was that in the Adams family uh, probably more than most women were so that's just interesting to think about she was super uh, business savvy and uh, managed the investments and the finances and the land dealings, et cetera, of the Adams family, uh, which was super rare at the time for a woman to be doing those things. And like Jared said, it's kind of maybe a silver lining uh, of John Adams as at least a human being. Um, next, I want to shift to her thoughts on slavery. And like we discussed, this is crucial. And the fact that she was outspoken about this at a time when uh, many people were not uh, is interesting. So I just have a couple of examples of things that happened, uh, letters that she sent, etc., that will kind of enlighten us onto her stance here. She says in a letter to John on September 22nd, 1774, she says, I wish most sincerely there was not a slave in the province. It always appeared the a most iniquitous scheme to me. Fight ourselves for what we are daily robbing and plundering from those who have as good a right to freedom as we have. You know my mind upon this subject. So she's straight calling out the quote-unquote revolutionaries here and saying how ridiculous it is that we are fighting for freedom for ourselves and we will not grant it to these other human beings that have just as much of a right to freedom as we do.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, that's – again, that's the point of this whole podcast is to call out the mythology of the traditional and celebratory U.S. narrative here. And one of the constant excuses I will hear in classrooms or when talking to people and engaging in the framing of the nation-state as it is, well, you know, how can we trust people that owned human beings or how can we trust that they had the correct intentions for these people that committed ethnic cleansing against indigenous people or suppressed women's rights – And, uh, that's definitely where I'm at. How can you trust these human beings? Well, oftentimes the excuse is, well, they didn't know any better, and that's just what the time period was like, and, and it's just, people weren't ready for these other things. Well, that's complete bullshit, and what Abigail Adams, that's why we're doing this episode specifically on her, is she was willing to call out the hypocrisy, the cognitive dissonance, um... Of these other architects of the country at the time. So this excuse that these men, the Washingtons and the Jeffersons and the Adamses and the Madisons, they just didn't know any better or they're just going along with the times or it just wasn't – they just weren't – America wasn't ready for uh, liberty or any of those types of things for women or uh, African-Americans or ethnic – or Native Americans. It's – It falls on deaf ears now because what we have here are clear primary sources, somebody with actually the ear of a future second president asking for these things and the fact that they don't occur in some cases, in the case of of emancipation post 1865, in the case of women's suffrage 1920, the fact that they take in some cases decades, in another case over a century is absolutely obscene. Uh, and this is the mythology of these framers, these these almost godlike deities we've made and carved into mountains and put on our money. And they had the option to just basically kind of fi- fix things from the get-go, create equity from the get-go, and they chose not to.
0: Totally. Like we've talked about before, I think her husband actually gets off the hook a little bit because he agreed with her on slavery, but he doesn't fight very hard to get it abolished. So I don't know how much he gets off the hook here, but... More than, like, a Jefferson or something like that. Then there's a little anecdote that I thought was interesting that I came across that I love because it definitely just goes into uh, and gives us a description of Abigail Adams and her thoughts on slavery. Um, so this is a letter to John on se- in 1791, and she's talking about this event that has happened. She's telling him uh, what went on. So I'll read the letter, and we'll talk about it. She says, I have been much diverted with a little occurrence which took place a few days since and which served to show how little founded in nature the so much boasted principle of liberty and equality is. Master Heath has opened an evening school to instruct a number of apprenticed lads ciphering at a shilling a week, finding their own wood and candles. James desired that he might go. By the way, just so you know, James is a little African-American, not little, I don't know how old he is, he's... 10 or 11 or something uh african-american boy that uh has befriended abigail adams has uh, befriended so she says james desired that he might go to this evening school i told him to go with my compliments to master heath and ask him if he would take him he did and master heath returned for answer that he would accordingly james went after about a week neighbor Faxon came in one evening and requested to speak to me his errand was to inform me that if James went to school, it would break up the school for the other lads refused to go. Pray Mr. Faxon has the boy misbehaved? If he has, let the master turn him out of school. Oh no, there was no complaint of that kind, but they did not choose to go to school with a black boy. And why not object to going to a meeting house? Because he does, Mr. Faxon. Is there not room enough in the school for him to take his separate form? Yes. Did these lads ever object to James playing for them when it was at a dance? How can they bear to have a black in the room with them then? Oh, it is not I that object. For my boys, it is some others. Well, pray, who are they? Why did they not come themselves? This Mr. Faxon is attacking the principle of liberty and equality upon the only ground upon which it ought to be supported, an equality of rights, the boy as a free man as much as any of the young men, and merely because his face is black, is he to be denied instruction? How is he to be qualified to procure a livelihood? Is this the Christian principle of doing to others as we would have others do to us? Oh, ma'am, you are quite right. I hope you won't take any offense, none at all, Mr. Faxon, only be so good as to send the young men to me. I think I can convince them that they are wrong. I have not thought it any disgrace to myself to take him into my parlor and teach him both to read and write. Tell them, Mr. Faxon, that I hope we shall go to heaven together, upon which Faxon laughed and thus ended the conversation. I have not heard any more upon the subject." I love that story so much because she straight just shreds this guy who comes to complain, saying that James shouldn't be allowed to go to this evening school because some of the boys are objecting. And, of course, they're his sons. But once she starts straight just calling him out, he backs off. And then, like she says, that's the uh, end she ever hears on that subject. So she tells this – uh black young man to go to this evening school and the instructor accepts him and then the students there start complaining that they don't want to go to school with a black boy so their dad comes and tries to complain to jane uh, jane adams to uh, abigail adams and she basically just straight shreds him and that tells us i think everything we need to know about uh adams and her opinions on racial inequality at the time
1: yeah she's a badass Totally. totally i mean like i said one of the few from this era like true badasses not fake badasses one of the true
0: and it's an example of the fact that she's not saying just this stuff in, like, letters to her husband that no one's ever going to read for decades. She's straight up, everyone knows this is her p- opinion, and that her neighbor shows up and she straight shreds him uh, in uh, her house as well. So she's no uh, stranger to controversy and speaking these opinions. Uh, I also love the fact that she just says, uh, is this the Christian principle of doing to others as we would have others do to us? Just straight up pointing out the hypocrisy. Of the Christians who can somehow uh, support racial inequality and just outright slavery at times super important.
1: Which in prior episodes is something we brought up, uh, specific people calling out the hypocrisy of, of the ideologies that we all claim to attach ourselves to, but then never actually act upon or act within the purview of. And it's going to be a constant theme moving forward. People are going to be looking at uh, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution or uh, the Old or New Testament. All of these ideologies that become paramount in the framing of again, the uh, the hegemony of the United States. And yet The funny thing is we very rarely act upon those things. We very rarely turn the other cheek. We know Thomas Jefferson wasn't referring to all men, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Abigail Adams, again, I love the fact that she's living during this time and calling it out. So there are no excuses. People could have known better. They chose not to.
0: All right. Now going on to her view on uh, women's equality. And this is actually famous. Most of our listeners have probably heard of this. I think, though, what's less famous is her husband's response. So I'm going to read her letter to her husband, John, and then Jared's going to read his response. This is the famous uh, referred to as Remember the Ladies, uh, which you'll hear when I read through this letter. So here we go. To uh, her husband, John, March 31st, 1776. Uh, keep the time frame in mind. So this is uh, 1776. She says, I have sometimes been ready to think that the passion for liberty cannot be equally strong in the breasts of those who have been accustomed to deprive their fellow creatures of theirs. Straight up again talking about slavery. Of this I am certain that it is not founded upon that generous and Christian principle of doing to others as we would that others should do unto us. I long to hear that you have declared an independency, and by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies, and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. And I'm going to read that last sentence again because it's fire. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That your sex are naturally tyrannical is truth, so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute, but such a view as which to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend. Why then not put it, out of the power of the vicious and the lawless, to use us with cruelty and indignity with impunity? Men of sense in all ages abhor those customs which treat us only as the vassals of your sex. Regard us then as beings placed by providence under your protection, and in the imitation of the supreme being, make use of that power only for our happiness.
1: I love it. Remember I mean, the ladies. Yeah, remember the ladies. And and, and 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 I mean, it kind of follows what she was taught. Talk- I mean, it, his, history and even anthropology, our findings kind of follow what she's saying here in the 1700s. Like one of the first real, again, like exploitative and then eventually oppressive uh, ideologies to come about in human history was the move from matrilineal societies to patriarchal ones. That's the one of the first clear delineations where we see mass exploitation of a group of people based on something, some sort of physical feature, in this case gender. So, I mean, we've got thousands of years of evidence here, So, and she draws upon it.
0: I love that. I love the end where she's like, if you don't remember the ladies, we will have no problem fomenting a rebellion and we will not stand for any laws that we don't have a voice or representation in. She's obviously far ahead of her time, but she is uh, foreshadowing the feminist movements that are coming.
1: Well, yeah, and, and, and the letters themselves, This the, this letter in particular doesn't end up being like made public at the time, but it is publicized in the early-ish to mid-1800s, and then it starts making the rounds, which, not coincidentally, is also for uh, one of the first wave of feminism's, like, growth periods, right? Right before we get to, like, the Seneca Falls period, right? That's when this letter starts becoming a little bit more public. So I don't think that's coincidental.
0: No, not at all, for sure. So Jared's going to read John's response. He responds April 14th, 1776. So,
1: like Nick, I'm not going to read the whole letter because part of it deals with, like, other, like, whatever family matters. I'm only, only going to read the part um, that uh, deals with Abigail's request. There's also an interesting letter that John Adams wrote to a, another important player here, James Sullivan, that basically explains to this other guy why women should not vote. Um, so I'll probably read an excerpt from that as well. But let's start with this one. So I'm going to pick up partway through this letter. Um, he says as to declarations of independency be patient read our privateering laws and our commercial laws what signifies a word and he says that of course because in April 14th of 1776 as we've already discussed in an earlier episode we we haven't gotten to the formal declaration itself of independence that won't happen until uh, July 2nd then of course ratified then sent forth and then the final one was in August I forget the exact date but regardless we're not quite there yet he then goes on to say as to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. I Historians have looked at that line and tried to figure out, I mean, I've looked at a site that's calling that like, ah, oh, that was just him being flirtatious or whatever. It's hard to read into this, just like in today's society, it's hard to read into like the meaning and feeling behind a text message. So this is a letter and, and we do know their relationship was actually super strong. So I don't know that he was being venomous, but still it's kind of a, I can't but laugh. Like you've, you've suggested this thing for a new code of laws and I can't but laugh. This is what he has to say. We have been told that our struggle has loosened the band, the bands of government everywhere, that children and apprentices were disobedient, that schools and colleges were grown turbulent, that Indians slighted their guardians and Negroes grew insolent to their masters. Oh, the Horror. Poor John. Oh, my God. How dare Native Americans slight their guardians or that slaves try not to be slaves anymore. God forbid, John. But your letter was the first intimation that another tribe, more numerous and powerful than all the rest, were grown discontented. This is rather too coarse a compliment, but you are so saucy. I won't blot it out. What I did, love that last Like, <laughs> what? John, you need to... Con- like, obviously, the tribe he's talking about is women. It's, like, half the population. And and, and he, he'd he never heard that they were discontented? Like, that, does that even... Like, that's mind-blowing to me that mm-hmm. this entire generation of white, middle-aged, rich dudes and the women around them had never once, like, piped up and said, Hey, like, can I have some things? Well, can it's I also complete pro- nonsense
0: because yeah. she had written to him before complaining about, like, women's property laws and exactly. stuff like that. So he so knows. The, yeah. yeah. He goes on to say,
1: depend upon it. We know better than to repeal our masculine systems. Although they are in full force, you know they are a little more than theory. We dare not exert our power in its full attitude. He's like, "Ah, we're not even doing the worst we can. We are obliged to go fair and softly in practice. You know we are the subjects. We have only the name of masters, and rather than give up this, which would completely subject us to the the despotism of the petticoat, I hope General Washington and all our brave heroes would fight. I am sure every good politician would plot, as long as he would, against despotism, empire, monarchy, aristocracy, oligarchy, or aquacracy. A fine story indeed. I begin to think the ministry, as deep as they are, wicked. After stirring up Tories, land jobbers, trimmers, bigots, Canadians, Indians, Negroes, Hanoverians, Hessians, Russians, Irish Roman Catholics, Scotch renegados, at last they have stimulated the demand, new privileges, and threatened to rebel. So many people. Oh my God, John, all oh, these other people. It's it's problematic here, John, and, and how dare women maybe throw their name into this. Um Okay, so let's transition now. This is now a letter written after those letters. This one is May 26th, 1776, and this is not to Abigail. This is between John and James Sullivan. And again, I'm not going to read the whole thing because they talk about like letters where their only form of correspondence. So they talk about like everything. It's like everything I have to say right at the second is in this letter. I will only focus on what we're talking about for this podcast. So here's what John has to say to James Sullivan. He says, it is certain in theory that the only moral foundation of government is the consent of the people. Fair enough. But to what an extent shall we carry this principle? Shall we say that every individual of the community, old and young, male and female, as well as rich and poor must consent expressly to every act of legislation? No, you will say this is impossible. How then does the right arise in the majority to govern the minority against their will? Whence arises the right of men to govern women without their consent? Whence the right of the old to bind the young without theirs? What's he saying right there? That's, I mean, essentially he's saying like, okay, so we're going to create this new thing and there's no way we can actually get everybody involved well why does he feel that way in fact i I hear that as an argument even today when we ask classes to explore the possibility of actual like direct democracy like why is that so mind-blowing for people we can't expect everybody to participate we have to delegate our rights to somebody else social contract theory of course thanks jj
0: anyway yeah i I don't even know i don't know that i have an answer for that i think that I mean, many times it's used as a way to subjugate the populations that you're not involving in the voting process, very clearly.
1: Right. And, and we'll eventually get to some other of the architect's arguments, again, against giving rights to people or voice, or voice to everybody. James Madison comes to mind right off the top of my head when we go into the Federalist Papers. But okay. He then continues on and he says, but let us first suppose that the whole community of every age, rank, sex, and condition has a right to vote. Fine, I'm good with that, John. This community is assembled. A motion is made and carried by a majority of one voice. The minority will not agree to this. Whence arises the right of the majority to govern and the obligation of the minority to obey? From necessity, you will say, because there can be no other rule. But why exclude women? you will say because their delicacy renders them unfit for practice and experience in the great business of life and the hardy enterprises of war, as well as the arduous cares of state. Uh, pause on that. Just, I mean, reflect upon what this man just said. Was well, is he saying I believe that or is he saying this is what you would say? I mean, he's using this re- rhetorical device to go back yeah. between John and James, but this is him basically echoing those sentiments. Whew. Okay. He goes on and he says, besides their attention is so much engaged with the necessary nurture of their children that nature has made them fittest for domestic cares and children have not judgment or will of their own. True. But will not these reasons apply to others? Is it not equally true that men in general in every society who are wholly destitute of property are also too little acquainted with public affairs to form a right judgment and too dependent upon other men to have a will of their own? Is this a, if this is a fact, if you give to every man who has no property a vote, you will not make a fine encouraging provision for corruption by your fundamental law. I will rephrase that because it was a question. Will you not make a fine encouraging provision for corruption by your fundamental law? Such is the frailty of the human heart and that very few men, that very few men who have no property have any judgment of their own. They talk and vote as they are directed by some man of property who has attached their minds to his interest. So here we have an entire paragraph where he's basically echoing why women should not have the right to vote to his friend, James Sullivan, and even more absurd in his time frame, maybe not even more absurd. Let me rephrase that equally absurd, why men without property. So basically poor dudes should also not have the right to vote. John Adams, architect of the United States.
0: Well, and it's funny because in that paragraph, he just line by line dehumanizes each of those populations. Right. Straight up. I mean,
1: children, why would children have any say so in anything? Mm -hmm. And uh, the funny thing is we actually, we we all feel that way today. All of us are guilty, myself and and Nick included. But I mean, like, again, if you are going to have a society of the people, and he asked the same question, should not all of the people give their consent? We have future episodes uh, coming up that's actually going to deal with this idea of consent, uh, focusing on specifically the constitution of no authority that that'll be coming up where about a hundred years from this time period uh there'll be an amazing person that basically argues without that consent it's all bullshit but anyway the fact that this is something this is one of the architects of the country basically going through in this most recent entry two populations poor men and all of women and why they should not have any say so in the framing and he says one in part of that it's, well, we have to protect the minority. Well, what is he talking about regarding the minority? He's not talking about people that are oppressed. He is talking about the minority of elite, wealthy, white dudes, and it is their goal to protect their interests. And that's why these other people can't have a say so. Again, I cannot, we cannot lose sight of how important this is, especially for its ramifications as of 2019 when we're recording this podcast that there is still an elite group of wealthy white men that are controlling the strings to the system, and we must understand the reason, when people ask questions on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever stupid talk shows, why this is still the case, this podcast is explaining to you why that's the case. It was designed that way from the get-go. John Adams, James Madison, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, these individuals constructed society this way intentionally, so we have not gone astray, things have not gone awry, this was the intent and it was always the intent this is the trajectory you cannot again build something new on the existing ruins of putrefaction and that's what we're seeing here i
0: actually want to go back to his quote uh, from his response directly to abigail because let's see if i can find the line here he says we know better than to repeal our masculine systems although they are in full force you know that they are little more than theory we dare not exert our power in its full latitude We are obliged to go fair and softly, and in practice, you know we are the subjects. He's saying, in fancy language, even though the laws are such that we have the power, you know who's really in charge. You, Abigail, and the other women are really in charge, and so everything's fine. Which I think is just such, like, a misogynistic, like, bullshit response that we even hear, like, in modern times. It's patronizing. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, completely ridiculous. Okay, shifting gears now. Oh, this is the last thing I'm going to talk about is sort of Abigail's last stand, uh, which I didn't know anything about before doing some research. Uh, I actually had heard of this, but I never didn't know the details. She actually writes a will. So this is in 1816. She is super sick and she thinks she's about to die. So she takes the time to craft a will to describe how she wants to divide up the property that she felt she owned. Um, she actually doesn't end up dying. She lives for another two years, but the will does survive. Just the act of writing this will was a small uh, act of rebellion, because like I said, at the time, married women were not legally allowed to own property. All property was owned by their husband. An interesting thing uh, legally at the time is that non-married women were legally allowed to own property. So under the law, married women had less rights than non-married women in this regard. And this had always annoyed uh, Abigail. Like I said, she wrote a letter to her husband, a few of them actually talking about how this basically pisses her off. So she writes a will. And not just writing the will was kind of an act of rebellion, but the way that the contents of the will and how she wants to divide up the property also is an act of rebellion. Rather than divide the property evenly among her direct descendants, which is what uh, John Adams ends up basically doing with uh, his property, she allocates some of the property to her sons that they had agreed upon, but the vast majority, all of the rest she gives to her female heirs. So her daughters, her nieces, her granddaughters, etc. Uh, this was an act against the patriarchy if there ever was one. So all of her like grandsons, eh, nephews, etc., they get nothing. She gives it all to the women descendants of her family, which is, uh, super interesting. Uh, because John Adams was still alive when she writes the will, uh, this was not a legally binding document. Uh, he outlives her by eight years. So he has no legal responsibility to abide by Abigail's wishes uh, because technically, legally, like we discussed, she actually doesn't own any property. It's all John's. Uh, and legally, she has no legal rights basically in this regard uh, at all. So he basically doesn't have to do anything. However, uh, testament to how he really feels about his wife, I think, and their marriage and their strength uh, and so on, he does. He, When she finally does die in 1818, he uh, splits up the property exactly as she describes in her will uh, with the the help of his son, John Quincy. uh, They see to it that the property is divided up exactly as Abigail wanted. So uh, as much as we like to denigrate John Adams, like Jared just read his absurdities uh, for some of his political stances and behaviors, when it comes to his wife, he seemed like a pretty good dude. So we have to let him off the hook there a um, little bit John's
1: actually I mean again even though I was just critiquing the way he wrote he, he in reality and this isn't backing off my feelings on John but that makes him like the least problematic of the architects he's still wildly problematic and yet, because of I mean even going back to like when he was willing to follow the law and uh, and and defend the soldiers uh, during the Boston massacre, I mean he is a man of specific ethics and morals, and we must at least give him due diligence there. We know he was no fan of slavery, so again, if you gauging him like with our political purviews or our ethical purviews or our moral purviews, yeah, he is still wildly problematic. He is still cut from the same cloth. But then gauging him against his peers, again, Hamiltons and Madisons and Washingtons and Jeffersons and so on and so forth, he is most clearly the most the most nuanced of the bunch. And, and there are like little silver linings in the way he conducted himself that are not present in some of those other individuals.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe Franklin we, we talk about a lot. Oh, I didn't bring his name up intentionally, yeah, so
1: maybe Franklin. Um, and then, of course, the one we, we really enjoy is Thomas Paine, but you all have already listened to that episode, and if you haven't, you better.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about uh, her legacy. Like I said, she dies in 1818. John Adams dies, uh, I think, eight years later in 1826. Yeah, I guess it had to be. Um, so she was the second lady, the wife of the vice president. She becomes then the first lady, the wife of the president, and... While holding those roles, and before, she is outspoken supporter of equal rights for blacks and women at a time when doing so was, like, basically unheard of. It was unheard of for even men to be saying these things, let alone a a woman, let alone a woman of the President of the United States, holding these ideals and being willing to be outspoken about them. Uh, The fact that she's the wife of the future Vice President and President, and then she has enough gall to call... Him and the other founders out on their bullshit in real time. Like, I can't stress enough how crucial that is, uh, for us to point out, uh, just how amazing Abigail Adams really was. Um, I think it also gives, uh, credit to the strength of the marriage between John and Abigail, the fact that she was willing to do this and the fact that he, I don't, I don't want to use the word tolerated it, but you can imagine that many other men at the time would never, they, their wife would say something like that one time, and that would be the end of it. Uh, John, I guess he agreed with her on most of the things. Uh, these little, like like Jared said, perhaps fl- flirtatious back and forth that they have in their letters, uh, super entertaining, I think it's just a testament to their marriage and its quality, uh, which, like I said, also unique at the time. Uh, she should really go down in history as one of the first abolitionists and advocates for uh, women's rights in history, really, uh, and definitely one of the rare ones that had enough uh, bravery to speak these things publicly. Uh, but as you might imagine, um, you've probably never heard of at least probably the abolitionist part and the property will part at the end of her life, even if you've heard of Remember the Ladies. That's no accident. That's because many of the biographies of Abigail Adams uh, focus uh, much, much less, if not completely ignore those aspects of her life, and more focus on the sort of her political public life as First Lady and Second Lady and Etc. And her traveling with John to Europe while he's the commissioner of France, and like all these things, rather than a strong, somewhat independent woman, that woman that ran shit, invested the Adams uh, money, managed their entire estate, spoke out against slavery, spoke out against uh, inequality of women, uh, etc. I mean, that should be her legacy, and that's the whole point of why we wanted to do this episode. Do you have anything to add?
1: Uh, let's remove one of those other dudes' monuments and give her one. Can we change one of the faces on, like, Mount Rushmore to hers? I mean, at this point, like, that's – I mean, that's control of a narrative, right? The fact that, 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 again, I mean, we see it there, like, in the material culture. Like, she deserves one.
0: No, 100%. I uh, don't disagree with that. All right, so that does it. That wraps up this episode on Abigail Adams and why she should be uh, valued as one of the most important figures of history at the time for sure. Uh, you can catch us on revolutionandideology.com or on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Uh, subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We also have a YouTube channel, so you can just search Revolution and Ideology on YouTube and subscribe to us there. Do do us a favor and go and give us a rating and a review on your podcast app. And be sure to tell your friends and share with them our podcast and help us grow and find our listeners. So until next time, I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.